Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Faith. A little damp October 5th Sunday. We all probably know the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Grace, a great word. A word, a word that is used in many different ways. Often before you eat a meal, you, you bless the food, and some people call it, let's say, grace, grace. You might see a, a, a beautiful animal uh, 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 jolting, striding with poise and dignity, and you say, that animal is moving with grace. You may have a, uh, see a person who extends incredible mercy and forgiveness to someone, and say, that person is extending grace to that other person. Maybe you have five children, and one is a girl, and you call her Grace. That's my daughter. In the world of philosophy, grace is contrasted with nature. Grace refers to that which is supernatural from above, and nature is that which is natural and material. Grace. But in the first century, grace was the common Gentile greeting, just as peace, shalom, was a common Hebrew greeting. And so the Apostle Paul, the champion of, of New Testament theology, he often greeted the churches by offering grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That greeting we see so often in his letters. Reminding us of the cultural diversity that was a normal aspect of the first century churches that he, he had planted with God's help. With, with that in mind, I want to suppose, Paul, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. The series we're in is fighting the good fight. Fight the good fight. The Paul, the, the Paul's message to his son of the faith, Timothy, who he's trained, and we're looking at what makes a healthy leader of a healthy disciple-making church. That's what we're looking at in this series that we've been in. Last week, Pastor Craig uh, got us into the second book of, of, of Timothy. We looked at First Timothy, and now select the passage from Second Timothy. Uh, and today we're going to look at chapter two. Portions of chapter two. Now, last week, Paul, Paul's, we saw Paul's exhortation to guard the gospel, guard the good news, the message of Christ, the good deposit he calls it, the the pattern of sound words. Paul, Paul, Paul wants to, he says, don't change it, don't modify it, don't apologize for it, don't compromise it, but wisely, clearly, proclaim it. Show how this timeless message applies to the times in which you live, Timothy, and pass it on to that next generation as a runner would pass on a baton as it applies to, to the next generation. Today we're going to look at the second chapter as it begins, and the text is, again, starting at verse 1. We're going to go to verse 13, ESV translation. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Not, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus 
with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. God's word. So in 2 Timothy, we have the, the last book, the last words of Paul before he was martyred for the faith. In this section, chapter 2, the first part, this, Paul reminds Timothy to be a disciple maker. Look at the first two verses. The things you've heard from me, pass it on to others who can pass it on to others. Be one who makes disciples who will make disciples. Then in verses 3 to 8, he, Paul reminds Timothy of what it will take to be an effective disciple maker. And he gives illustrations of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. And all three of these vocations involve great focus, commitment to a task, discipline, sacrifice, trust, cooperation with others, and a, and, and a careful following of, of time-honored procedures. And these are the qualities that Paul wants Timothy to have as he serves the Lord in helping the believers at Ephesus and beyond. And then Paul reminds Timothy of the message of disciple-making. And the message is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ, verses 8 to, 12, 8 to 15. That's, that's the message. Now, normally we would look at the passage and explain it. This is exposition. We exposit what is there in the passage and apply it to our lives. That, that's what expositional preaching is all about. But today is a little bit different. Today is a unique moment in history. And I'm going to do something very different than what we normally do. Rather than looking at a passage, I'm going to look at a word. One word. And that word, as you probably anticipate, is the word grace. Grace. It's in verse 1. Be strengthened by grace. Paul made the word almost shorthand for the unmerited, undeserved, unsought love of God that we receive as a free gift when we re realize our need for forgiveness and repent of our sins and trust Christ as our only hope in life and in death. And this is the primary way the phrase is used. You often hear the term, the gospel of grace gospel of God's grace. Grace is more the, the why rather than the what. What am I talking about here? The what of the gospel is clearly given in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and following where Paul says, I, gave the, I, I delivered to you the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. That's the, 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 the historic facts of the gospel that the incarnate God has come to us to die on a cross for us and has been raised up that, that, those are the historical facts. But there's a why. Th th why did God do that? What's his motivation? What was in his heart? What moved him? And the word is grace. It was grace. Grace moved God to develop a rescue plan for sinners like you and me. The song we often sing, Friends of God by Israel Houghton, three times at the end of the first verse it says, It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. And that's my title today. It's amazing. Life, now and forever and eternity, is from beginning to end grounded in the amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Is it amazing to you? Have you found it to be amazing in your life? I want you to be excited about this one who is the dispenser of grace, Jesus Christ. And I want you to leave joyfully committed to living a life of gratitude and service, praise, and obedience. Three things we want to look at as we, talk, as we think about grace. I want to talk about God's grace towards sinners, 
God's grace towards the saints of God and then God's grace towards all people. You'll see where, what, where we're going as we break down each point. First, God's grace saves sinners. There's a grace towards sinners. This is the grace of what scholars call justification. We'll break it down in a minute. Verses 1 and 2. Be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. Paul says, you were saved by grace, Timothy. Let this grace strengthen you now in your walk and in your service as you seek to make disciples. And he'd written in Ephesians that by grace you're saved. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So he says in verse 2, what you heard from me, and that's the gospel. And he's mentioned in, in the first chapter that it's the saving message of God, the pattern of sound words, the good deposit, the gospel. You heard it from me among many witnesses. It was a public proclamation that Timothy was, was pleased to hear from, from Paul. Um, he said, you heard it from me? It's just one message. It was the, the private message, the public message. Pass that message on just as you've heard it. Don't distort it. Pass it on. Make disciples. Proclaim grace. Fulfill the Great Commission. Brian Chapel, a PCA pastor, has written, Holiness by Grace, uh, Delighting in the Joy that is Our Strength. That's the name of the book. And he says this. <clears throat> Many years ago, the preacher Philip Brooks explained grace, G-R-A-C-E, as God's riches at Christ's expense. The, the, that acrostic beautifully expresses how the blessings of God, which Jesus alone deserves, are mercifully passed to us as a consequence of his suffering and dying for our sin. When we trust that Christ's work, rather than our own achievements, is the basis of our righteousness, then God mercifully grants us the riches of his love that only Jesus deserves. God looks at us as though we were as holy as his own son and treats us as lovingly despite our own many perfections. Holy, holy, holy is our Lord. And yet we can have a relationship with the holy God because of what Jesus has done. In verse 8, he says, my gospel is about Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the, the Jewish Messiah, the one who's risen from the dead. Only Jesus Christ, the incarnate Messiah, can reconcile sinners to a holy God. In our church, we talk a lot about reconciliation, don't we? We see our commitment to gospel reconciliation and a vision for diversity that's involved with that. And, and, and among uh, God's people... We see that as an extension, in one sense, of Dr. Martin Luther King's dream for the beloved community, this reconciled community. And so you often hear us quote Dr. King. I'll do that a couple times today. But, but you may also see, so be unaware that we also appreciate Martin Luther. King's father, in fact, appreciated Martin Luther. In fact, here's something many people don't know. King Sr., who's often called Daddy King, um, he was actually given by his parents the name Michael King. And his son, when he was born, he named him Michael King Jr. When Daddy King answered the call to ministry and took his first church, uh, he changed his name, and he changed his son's name. So you have Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Sr. He did that in tribute to the 16th century reformer, Martin Luther. That's how significant he thought the Reformation was. In, in the ministry that he was about to begin. And Tuesday is the 500th anniversary 
of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. The question in all of Europe was that they were pondering was simply this. How can a person be right with God? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a question that many people are still wondering and pondering. How can I know I'm right with God? How can, uh, how can I do, deal with the sin that I feel? Where will I spend eternity? Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who became very troubled as he looked at three things. The first thing he looked at was his own heart. <laughs> no matter how much he prayed, no matter how much he confessed his sin to God, to the feet, the priest, he could never find peace in his conscience. The second thing he looked at was the church, his church. He saw scandalous behavior by leaders. The 15th century church was very powerful. And then had not only great spiritual influence, but great economic influence and great political influence over many people. Papal uh, usurping power over kings was quite normal. That troubled him. And the third thing he looked at was the word of God, the scriptures. And what he saw in the church didn't match what he saw in the scripture that the church ought to be. In terms of practice, in terms of belief. These things, he said, were out of order. So now, now, look, like all human leaders, Luther had flaws. His flaws are out there. He had crude language. He had an anti-Semitic streak that's been very well documented. And yet, God chose to use him to change the church and therefore to change history. And I learned this week from some of you that, that Luther was greatly influenced by, by good things that he saw in the church of Ethiopia which was doing some things that he said, why can't the Catholic Church that I'm part of do that? So there was an, there was an African influence on him in, in his thinking uh, in the years before this. And so on October the 31st, 1517, 500 years ago from Tuesday, Professor Luther posted or nailed or glued or did something with 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, posting his concerns. This was what people did that's like you'd post something on a telephone pole. He posted his concerns, 95 statements of, of concern. This, Wittenberg Church, this, is where, this was where he was the professor at the university there, the theological school. And he did that because he, he wanted to see change. You know, Luther never wanted to leave the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church. Unfortunately, he was not allowed to do that because they said, no, get out of here. But he, he, he was, he, his intention was to change the church from within. Now, we should also remember that the, the printing press by Gutenberg had just been invented before this. And it was as culture-changing in that day as the Internet has been in our day. It just changed communications forever. And we have many pamphlets that were created, and they were quickly distributed about these issues that Luther was concerned about. And so that within weeks, the fact that there was this German monk named Martin Luther, who had raised concerns about the church. That message went viral throughout the continent. <laughs> Every local parish priest had to comment on whether they thought Luther was right, or some crazy troublemaker, or at worst, a heretic. So this Reformation at its core was a rediscovery of the simple grace of God. That's what I want you to understand. It was a rediscovery of God's grace. It's summarized in what's called the five solas, five solas 
of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, you see them right there. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just briefly walk through them. By the way, we'll be doing a, a, a soul food class in a couple weeks in November uh, where we're going to dive into these uh, big time, each week uh, one of these five. But they're, here they are in a nutshell, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. What's that all about? The final authority in matters of faith did not reside in the tradition of the church or the feelings of the pope, but they resided in the word of God, the scriptures. And there were men, Wycliffe and Huss and Tyndale, who had believed that and had died because of that belief. The scripture was the, the final verdict. Luther, you see a quote from Luther here, from the beginning of my reformation, I have asked God to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels, but to give me the right understanding of his word, the holy scriptures. For as long as I have God's word, I know that I'm walking in his way. I shall not fall into any error or delusion. He had a high view of scripture. The reformers brought the scriptures back to the church. Second, grace alone, sola gratia. This, this salvation they're talking about is not a human effort, but the activity and effort of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. This rescue mission was done by God. It was unsought, undeserved, and unmerited by people. And third, sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone. This salvation is not through the combination of faith plus works of righteousness. Luther wrestled with the Bible, with the text of Romans and, and Galatians, and particularly that verse from Habakkuk, that the just shall live by faith. The just, the righteous ones, they shall live by faith. It just seemed that what he saw was that the, the just shall live by faith plus works. That didn't seem to square with what he saw in Scripture. The system of works had seven sacraments that you had to do. There was a system of the practice of indulgences. This is a corrupt system of paying money to decrease one's time in purgatory by paying money to the church. Purgatory, the basic idea of the day was that all morally great people would go to heaven. All morally wicked people would go to hell. But most people would spend time in a place called purgatory, kind of a halfway house, a halfway station, where you know, they're sent, they have to do some type of punishment. And after a while, after you've paid for all the sins that you've done for, then you, then you, then you get to go to heaven. But the clicker was this. If you paid money to the church, you could reduce your time in purgatory. That's a good deal for you and for the church, right? You got that. So Luther said, time out on that. No, no, that's not what the scriptures teach. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, declared righteous, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Faith alone. Fourth, so does Christus. Script, uh, Christ alone. Christ alone. We sing a song in Christ alone. The, the, this, the basis of this justification was the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. It's given to us who receive it by faith as a free gift. And it's not Christ plus. 
Christ plus baptism. Christ plus being part of the church. Christ plus doing good works. It's Christ alone. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul could write, for, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, our substitute, the great exchange. We receive his righteousness. He receives our sin on that cross. And, and lastly, the fifth sola is sola dea gloria. Sola dea gloria. This is for the glory of God alone. It's all, that, it's all done uh, not for us. The idea was salvation was to exalt not the church, not the sinner who, who gets saved, not Mary who was exalted in so many ways in that system, but it was to the glory of God, the triune God. He's the one who does the saving. And, it, and in that is also an incipient call to live a life to the glory of God. We have a quote here by, by Dr. Martin Luther King. Listen to it. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end, the purpose of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. See, it, might, it sounds like he's read the, the Westminster Catechism, which says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, I think that, that, that's in his mind there. Glory of God. We heard a scripture reading, the parable of Jesus in Luke 18. The two men who went to church, went to the temple. One went <laughs> boldly, talking about the great things he had done for God, for humanity. Talking about how he had kept himself from great sin. Talking about how I, I, I'm not, not this guy over here, this tax collector. And then there was the other guy, the tax collector, the humble man who just didn't even, couldn't even look up to God. He just looked down and whispered, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Two men picture of all kind, of everyone in the human race. And Jesus says about the, the one who humbled himself, this man went home justified. There was the word. Declared right. Though in himself he wasn't right. Though himself he, he knew he wasn't right. That was the key. The one who thought he was right did not go away justified. Went away condemned. God's grace saves. It justifies. Declares right. Sinful people. The second thing in the text is, is that God's grace transforms saints. It is a transformation that's incipient uh, in the New Testament gospel. Verse 1, you can be strengthened by grace. There's a strengthening that takes place. And then verses 10 to 13, we see this, this salvation is for the sake of the elect. This salvation for God's elect. The saints. The, the, the saints are the, those who have been set apart for, uh, by God through Christ. Those who have been strengthened by his grace, enabled to sustain. Um, <clears throat> salvation is an interesting word in the New Testament. There's really what some have called three tenses to salvation. There's the idea that I am saved. This is justification that we just talked about. I am saved. I, I have, I'm saved from the penalty of my sins. God is not going to judge me because of my sins if I trust in Christ. The, the second tense is the present. I am being saved. This is... The, the power of sin in our lives right now. And, and as the Holy Spirit, as we're united to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, there, there, there's an there's, there's a, a eradication of sin in our life, the power of sin. I am being in the process saved from sin, saved from myself. And that's an ongoing process. And the third tense is that I will be saved. I will be delivered. I'll be delivered from this body of death, as Romans says, Romans 7 says. 
from the very presence of sin itself. I'll be in the presence of, of the Lord. I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. So there, the word saved, salvation, there are actually three aspects of that in, in the scriptures. Often we think of just the first one, which is the, the I am, I have been justified. That's, that's, and we think of grace often the same thing. But the essence of the debate in the 16th century was not about whether grace could transform a person. That was not the problem. That was not the issue. The issue is, is, is New Testament salvation, is it grounded in our being transformed or is it solely based and grounded on the cross of Christ? That was the issue. There was no, no question that grace could change people. And the answer of the reformers is that we must never take our eyes off of the cross. We, have to take our, we, we, should, we should not look at ourselves but gaze at Christ. It's not the good work of transformation that he does in us that saves us. It is not the, the good works of blessing that he does through us that saves us. No, it is what Christ has done. It's what God has done in declaring us to be righteous for the sake of that's what saves us. We just repent and we believe. But grace changes people. The Holy Spirit comes and he awakens us and regenerates us and seals us and empowers us as we unite it to Christ. And someone has said about that that uh, it's almost like a sailboat, like a sailboat. The boat doesn't move unless the wind blows it because the power is in the wind. The power isn't in the, the sail itself. And that's the way the Spirit of God is in our life. Any movement towards holiness that happens in our life, not because of us, because of the Spirit, who was like the wind, Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus, that the Spirit blows upon us. In the new covenant, we receive a new heart, a new spirit, that we're able to walk with him. God's grace leads to our performing works of righteousness, but grace doesn't come to us because we have performed works of righteousness. That's the difference. Grace is not the caboose, but it's the lead car in the train. Grace doesn't only justify us, grace keeps us. We don't keep ourselves. All we can do is give ourselves to the means of grace. We can put ourselves in the place where grace can continue to do its work. Grace energizes us. God's grace gives, is the energy for the Christian life. Prayer, worship, scripture, fellowship, witnessing, giving, serving. These are the means whereby we grow in our faith. The means of grace. Now, we need to also understand that the issue is not Protestant or Catholic like some people think it is. You know, there are, there are a lot of Protestants who are really, in their theology and their orientation, they're Catholic, if I can put it that way. They're, they're, the issue is not the label. The issue is, what are you trusting? Are you trusting your, your works or you're trusting in Christ? I just came across the story of a, of, a, of, a, of a Catholic that maybe... God's doing a great work in his life. And it's an actor, Mark Wahlberg. The, the, the story is actor Mark Wahlberg seeks God's forgiveness for a role in Boogie Nights. Haven't seen that movie? I don't want to see that movie, apparently. In, in the midst of an onslaught of accusations of sexual harassment against powerful Hollywood moguls like Harvey Weinstein, PJ Media reports that an actor has had a pang of conscience. Mark Wahlberg, who is now a committed Catholic, has admitted to praying to God and seeking forgiveness for his role in Boogie Nights, a film that celebrated the seedy porn industry. He says, I pray to be a good servant to God, a father, a husband, a son, a friend, a brother, an uncle, and, and, and a good neighbor, a good leader to those who look up to me, and a good follower to those who are serving God and doing the right thing. It's not Protestant or Catholic. It's what's going on. 
by God's grace. Grace transforms. Galatians 2, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, but I live. But not, but not it, it's Christ that lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's that old song that we sing often, Amazing Love. How can it be that you, my king, should die for me? Amazing love. I know it's true. And so it's my joy to honor you. And all I do, let me honor you. That is the heart that's been transformed by grace. A sinner who now wants to honor with his life the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace has the power to transform hearts. There's one last thing about grace we need to see. The scripture says that God so loved the world, and we often think of that as his love for his people to whom he died, the elect, the chosen. But there's a, and that's true, but there's a broader aspect to God's love. Theologians like to use the term common grace. I want to talk about God's, God's grace that blesses everybody. Everyone experiences the common grace of God. The classic verse on common grace is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so you may be the sons of your Father who's in heaven. And, and, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's raining outside, isn't it? Is it just raining on the unbelievers or on the believers too? Does the, is, does the rain discriminate? Does God discriminate? Well, if you're a believer, I'm not going to have a rain on you. The sun, when it shines, does it shine on just the believers or, or does it shine on believers? No, it is, it, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a comprehensiveness to the, the, the shining of, of the sun and, and the raining of the rain. And, and this is because God loves and blesses all of us in one sense indiscriminately. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And there's a lot here for us to focus on and reflect upon. There are certain ways in which God has a special care and a special love for those who become his children through faith in Jesus. However, there are other ways in which God's love and care is given to all people. Human beings are, are created in God's image, and that's reflected in our physical, our mental skills, our talents, our abilities. Much, much more than animals and plants. We bear the similarity to our creator. Think with me. As humans cooperate with one another, we benefit from the gifts and abilities of one another, don't we? That life might be peaceful. We may have our physical needs met. We may have the potential to know and serve our creator, know him as our redeemer. Here, here in 2 Timothy, verses 3 and 7 are quite enlightening here because... Look at the text. There's, there's, Paul, Paul lifts up three occupations, and he uses them as examples for Timothy and how he's to, to carry himself as a minister, as a leader in the church. But look at the three. They're each an expression of God's grace, his common grace. Soldiers, farmers, and athletes. A soldier protects us, and that's good, isn't it? Fighter planes and submarine technology and the intellectual ability to create tracking systems and to create nuclear energy, the ability to do these things is a gift from God that the plants and animals don't have. 
humans choose, choose whether to use these gifts for evil or for good. But they're manifestations of God's common grace. Farmers, they provide for us, and that's good. Maybe, maybe you had a piece of meat last night. Maybe you had some chicken or some steak. I don't know. Maybe you had a piece of meat. Let me ask you a question. Did you go into your yard and kill the animal and clean the animal and then cook it up? I imagine none of you did that. Maybe some of you went fishing on the Chesapeake. I don't know. But I imagine most of you didn't. Most of you, what you ate last night, you went to a store and bought. Unless you have a vegetable garden or something. I don't know. That's an exception. Most of you, there's a system whereby we are, we are blessed by the talents and abilities of other people to meet our needs. That's, that's God's common grace. And it's not just, that system isn't just for Christians. It's a common, there's a common grace element to the cooperation that God wants for human beings. And we benefit from that in this provision. And then there's the athlete. The picture there is, uh, is of the runner who, who has to go according to the rules. Athletes, they entertain us, the entertainers. And, and in, being entertained is good. It's good to be entertained. I, I think when I, whenever I see that verse, I think about Eric Little, Little um, uh, from the movie Chariots of Fire years ago. We talked about, you know, he was an Olympic uh, runner, uh, gold medal winner, and he said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. There was something about just simply running to the glory of God that he wanted to do. And he became a missionary. But there's those, there's those three common grace vocations, uh, protection, provision, entertainment. Those are good things. Those are good things. There, there's some important implications of this thing called common grace I want to Want to, want, to, want to walk through very quickly. One is there's some sociological implications. Many Robert Woodbury has uh, written some things called the missionary roots of liberal democracy. The missionary roots of liberal democracy, Robert Woodbury. He says this, the work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. We often look down at missionaries, particularly conversionary missionaries is, is what he talks about, those who believe in conversion. He says, in areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past, are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women. He concedes, yes, there, there were and are racist missionaries and missionaries who do self-centered things. He acknowledges that. But he adds, if that were the average effect, we would expect that the places where the missionaries had influence to be worse than the places where missionaries weren't allowed or were restricted in action. We find exactly the opposite on all kinds of outcomes. What's he saying? He's saying the, the, the Reformation spawned a movement around the world of people, come, of people coming to, to, to take the gospel. He's saying that we often look at that as, as the, the horrible missionaries, and there were some, but he said, by and large, the data shows it was a good thing that happened sociological implications of the Protestant Reformation. Also, there, there are some what I would call vocational implications. In the Middle Ages, the clergy alone had the scriptures, just the clergy. Luther wanted the farmer in the field to be able to read his Bible, to rightly handle the Bible and reach others with good news. So the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer was established. It was reestablished. The Protestant Reformation opened the door for believers to have the Bible in their own language. And so Colossians says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, 
Jesus, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. There is no sacred or secular distinction which we often have in our minds. All kinds of work is God's kind of work. That's the point, not just spiritual work or church work. Non-church vocations or careers can still be godly callings for God's people. There's dignity in work, there's serving fellow human beings and being part of the great system whereby humans help one another flourish and prosper. Luther said this, from the beginning of my Reformation, I've asked God to send me neither. Anyway, are you one who teaches in a formal school setting? You have a godly calling. You have a godly calling. Do, Do you help or heal like doctors or nurses or counselors? You have a godly calling. Do you work in a lab and find remedies for disease? You have a godly calling. Do you serve food in a restaurant or cook food behind the restaurant? You have a godly calling. Do you raise the next generation full time? You have a very godly calling. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis in 1968. And he was there. You know why he was there? To stand up for the dignity of the trash men of the city the sanitation workers. He understood common grace. That there's a system of cooperation of people using skills and talents, respecting one another, that must work to bless the lives of people. So there's some personal missional implications for each one of us. And first and foremost, if, you, if you've never received justification, then common grace doesn't mean anything to you. You need to know Christ you need to know his salvation. You need to, to, to have the peace that comes from being a child of God. Receive the free gift of salvation that comes through Jesus. You need to discover your calling. Discover your calling and, and joyfully serve in the context of your calling to glorify God with your life, with excellence, with skill. And you need to tell others about him because they won't know until you speak the name of Jesus with humility and clarity. We serve God through our lives and, and with our lips. Saints, we need, we need another reformation in our day. We need another reformation in our day. Not a movement of evolution towards some future humanistic utopia. We need a movement that goes back to the basics of the gospel of Jesus. That's what we need. Back to the word of God. Because the word of God changes lives. John Newton, of course, is the one who wrote those words. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He was born into a godly home. Very godly home. But boy, did he stray from it. He was known as an as a extremely cruel and profane man. He was a slave owner in his younger days. But the gospel got a hold of him. The gospel of God's grace got a hold of John Newton. He was converted radically. Became a preacher for many years. He, in his ministry, he influenced Wilberforce, who changed the, the British Empire in terms of abolition. He wrote the words to that to this song and many songs. Amazing grace. He also said this, and I'll close with this. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He was lost, and now he's found. He was blind, now he's, is that you? Is that your story? the story of grace, the amazing grace of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your grace. 
the fullness of it. I pray for anyone here today, Lord, who's been trusting in their own works and not simply trusting in the free gift of grace that's available through your Son who died on a cross for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Lord, we who know you, may we get excited about you, excited about living for you in these days. Lord, these days need to see the Word of God more profound in our own individual lives, in our, in our churches, in our society. May it be so. May it begin with us as we, as we walk with you carefully. Give you thanks, Lord, for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.